talking all things wound care. This is The Pressure Effect, brought to you by Smith & Nephew. Welcome to The Pressure Effect from Smith & Nephew. I'm your host, Dr. David Zobel. If you want to stop a patient from developing a hospital-acquired pressure injury, it's best to start preventative measures as early as possible. On today's episode, we are focusing on getting them at the door, how prevention starts in the emergency department. Joining us to discuss this important topic is Dr. Lee Rutzi, Medical Director at the Center for Wound Healing and Hyperbaric Medicine for Saratoga Hospital in Saratoga Springs, New York. Today, we will dive into why we should pay attention to pressure injury prevention in the emergency department, what critical preventative work should take place in the ED, and much more. Welcome, Dr. Rutzi. Thanks so much again for joining us today. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Lee, you joined us here on the podcast before, but just to start off, can you remind our listeners a little bit about your background in medicine and about your experience with hospital-acquired pressure injuries? Sure. As, as you can tell by the color of my hair, I've been doing this for a long time, but my original background was family medicine and emergency medicine. So I was an emergency uh, department attending for about 20 years and now have been working full-time in the field of wound care since about 2005. For the last six years, I've been a member of the board of directors of the National Pressure Injury Advisory Panel, the NPIAP, which, as most of the listeners uh, will know, is uh, the national organization that creates, develops, and presents much of the research and education in terms of pressure injury prevention and treatment nationwide. So that's been been quite an experience for me and developed uh, a much greater interest in pressure injury than I ever imagined that I would. But it's been uh, an interesting pathway, and I think it's so important for the audience to understand what the what the downstream effects of the development of hospital-acquired pressure injuries are in terms of quality of life and uh, expenditure of healthcare dollars and the medical legal risk of these sorts of problems. That's a little bit uh, about my background. In my past 10 years in Buffalo, I spent a lot of time teaching this within the residency programs back in, in Buffalo, hoping to, hoping to, to change the dynamics of uh, the situation that I realize has been so prevalent. Every time I speak with a group of residents, I ask them, how many of you in the room have had any formal education in wound care or pressure injury during your medical school or residency careers? And the answer is always the same. It's zero. With that said, Lee, I I couldn't agree with you more. I often ask that same question to some peers or colleagues when I'm giving a a presentation. And uniformly, the answer is we generally do not have a good formal wound care, wound healing, pressure injury prevention, educational program in our allopathic medical schools for the most part. And with that said, we're we're here because we're both passionate about it. We both have an interest in it, but yet uniformly, it seems to often be overlooked amongst our peers. So today our focus is on the importance of starting pressure injury prevention early, as soon as we see the patient. And as early, what I mean by that is in the emergency department. Now to set the stage, 
Lee, can you talk about why we should pay attention to pressure injury prevention in the emergency department? Sure. I think one of the most important pieces of this in the past has been to understand what happened in the days leading up to the patient arriving in the emergency department. Especially during the COVID pandemic, many of these folks were sick for many days at home before they arrived in the ER and probably had pressure injuries at the time of their arrival in the emergency department. Now, if they were missed in the ED because of the acuity of illness and the shortage of staff, then they'd get up to the floor and all of a sudden the hospital owns the pressure injury, even though it may not, even though it may have been present when they arrived in the emergency department. I think the two short answers to your question are, number one, the history of where has this elderly woman been and what's, what's been her situation for the past 48 to 72 hours. But most importantly, we've got to do a skin exam in the ER. We've got to roll the patient and we've, we've got to look. We can't dictate that history and physical. And where it says skin, we say warm and dry with no rash or lesion. We can't make that statement unless we look at the backside. I, I agree, Lee. And I think it's important not to forget the basics here. Uh, you need to do good history and physicals. Learning about the patient's previous 48 hours prior to getting to the emergency room can really help clue you in that this patient has been ill for a while, resisting going to the emergency department. Now that they're in the emergency department, they're not only ill, but they've been laying on their back or on their side for, for days in the home environment. And never to underestimate the importance of that good physical exam. Sometimes I'm sure having been an emergency room doctor yourself, you get inundated with many different things, but the physical exam includes the skin. Skin is our largest organ and we need to make sure that it's documented appropriately. The second part of that, I guess I, I should have mentioned earlier, is that now dur throughout the pandemic and even since, our emergency departments are characteristically short-staffed and busier. So the second part of the problem is in housing inpatients in the emergency department. We've had situations nationwide where people who need to be admitted to a medical floor are housed in the emergency department for days, perhaps on suboptimal pressure redistribution surfaces. That's been another one of the big problems. Yes, I, I was going to allude uh, to that particular problem at some point here in the, this episode of the podcast. And as a surgeon, I see that in the recovery room setting also. We have patients that are in the post-anesthesia care unit for a day and a half at a time because of the shortage of staff and the shortage of getting the patients to the next level of care. The emergency department is no different. They're, they're housing patients for extended periods of time. And those patients probably don't have the exact same skin assessment by the nursing team or the same valued turning of the patient that you might see up on the floor in the ICU that is happening in the emergency department. Would you agree? Right. I, I would agree. And in addition to that, 
I'm sure that your experience has been the same as mine. The mattress surfaces in the emergency departments really have to be multifunctional in terms of being able to deal with cardiac arrests and a number of other things. So they tend not to be as effective in terms of pressure redistribution as the mattresses on the floor, on the medical med surge units, or in the ICU. And with the volume and the staffing in the ERs, as, as you really accurately said, turning and positioning, turning and repositioning uh, all too often becomes a second priority. And so these patients in our emergency departments that are housed for a, an extra 12 hours, 24 hours, or, or two days on a stretcher of sorts, which is typically just a vinyl surface with uh, maybe a foam core, is completely suboptimal compared to what the hospital bed is up on the floor. And is there any knowledge that emergency departments are trying to change that surface? Is there any knowledge that an emergency department is initiating more diligence and turning a patient on that type of pressure surface? I, I think that's the present challenge. And when I speak with ER folks, I, you know, I, I speak to them with sympathy as well as empathy because I've, I've been in their shoes. And the pushback often is, and I say this a little bit tongue in cheek, we're busy saving lives here. We don't have time to do all that other stuff in terms of the skin. And certainly in some cases that, that that's absolutely true, but we've got to figure out a way to fix it. And it reminds me, it reminds me of a study that was done in the United Kingdom by a group of nurses in a hospital emergency department. And without going through the whole study, basically they were able to enact a, a scenario where patients were exposed to a very brief risk survey on arrival in the emergency department. It was a, a question and answer thing that maybe took a minute or two. And based on the responses to that survey, they were placed on a pressure redistribution surface, like what we commonly refer to as a low air loss mattress or something like that in the emergency department. But the big trick was for them to actually have low air loss surfaces stocked in the emergency departments. And I think by and large, that's something that we don't do on this side of the Atlantic. I, I'm, I'm not aware, I've never had anybody tell me that they have in the ED storeroom low air loss mattress surfaces. But, and that doesn't preclude turning and, and repositioning or it doesn't eliminate the need for turning and repositioning but at least it gives you a little bit of a cushion, no pun intended. It, it gives you a little bit of a leeway in terms of turning and repositioning if at least you're on a proper surface. The other thing is what else happens to people in the emergency department? They come in, then they go to CT. They lay out a hard table. They come back, eh, I can't see quite enough on the CT. We go to MRI. Or and geography, or any one of a number of other ancillary locations, and none of the surfaces in those locations are really optimal. So it becomes a matter of budget, and I see hospitals replacing their mattress surfaces on med surge units, and especially in the ICUs, but that has not happened 
to a significant enough extent in the emergency department and all those other suites, if you will. And I don't, you mentioned the post anesthesia care unit, which I have no experience in other than recently having my knee replaced. And I don't remember most of that, but I can imagine that's the case there. I think you hit on a bunch of great topics, one of which is that study you mentioned it was in done overseas and made some effort to try to address the problem. I think you and I could sit here today and both agree that the emergency department is, is doing a great job of saving lives. The doctors and the nurses staffs are doing an amazing piece of work in, in an environment where the individual daily census changes, the, the, the severity of the patients that hit the, the door changes, and, and they're doing a great job with that. So, But from our perspective, when we have to deal with pressure injuries down, down the line and they, get, they maybe start in the emergency department, who should be taking the initiative in the hospital system? The emergency room doctors, the nurses, the hospital administrators? Well, good question. You, you probably laughed a number of times in medical school when you were taught how to do an H&P. When you do the history, it's ABC David L., right? And so labs were always at the end of that. And ABC, of course, airway, breathing, circulation, so on and so forth. But somewhere there ought to be a skin, an S in there for skin. And when a report is given from the ER to the med surge unit or the ICU, somebody should either say, I did a head-to-toe skin exam front and back, and it's clear. Or I didn't do it because I didn't have time, and you'll need to do it on the floor. One of the one of the truisms is that if a patient shows up on the floor and they still have their pants on, there's a good chance that nobody looked at the skin. I it's unfortunately the nuts and bolts of this still fall back on the nursing staff. It, nobody would argue that it's the ER doc's job to do a head to toe skin exam, but. Somebody has to do it, and I think most of us agree, and we have this conversation in, in the NPIAP quite frequently, and maybe I've pushed it a little bit since I've been on the board, but uh, we, can't be, we can't be like we were three decades ago where everything having to do with the skin was relegated to the nursing staff. And if there was a problem with the skin, it was the nurse's fault. We as providers really need to get on board and take responsibility for this. And truth be told, if there's a pressure injury present on admission, if the provider does not document that is there within 24 hours of admission, then the hospital owns it. It automatically becomes a facility-acquired pressure injury. Now, the doc or the PA or the NP, the advanced practice provider, doesn't have to do the exam themselves, but they've got to get that information from someone and the provider has to document. So clearly we think this is a, a critical issue. And how do we get the emergency departments freestanding hospital based to really buy into the part that this is essential to the patient and the hospital's well-being? That's a tough call. And what I've tried to do, what I've tried to do in the systems within which I have worked 
is to create like a 15 or 20 minute PowerPoint historically, a wound care, a wound care for the emergency department provider, pressure injuries for providers. What is it that we as providers have to do in order to drive this change? But to one of your earlier questions, we also need to get buy-in from the C-suites because prevention costs money. Prevention means that we have to get better mattresses. Prevention means that we need to pay for prophylactic foams over bony prominences. We have to pay for enough staff to be sure that we're able to turn and reposition the patients as, as they should be repositioned. It, it really has to start at the C-suite level. I couldn't agree with you more, Lee. I think that was very well said. The hospital systems nationwide, maybe before COVID and certainly after COVID, have certainly take, taken on some financial burdens where many of them are no longer functioning in a revenue-positive situation. And getting them to put money forward in a capital expenditure or to add more staff when they can't even hire their current staff becomes a, a significant dilemma for the, the hospitals at large. But I agree that when you look at the entire situation that the pressure injury costs a hospital system a lot of money, I think it's w reasonable to think that a hospital system at the C-suite level has to address it and put some money into it to get a very high return on investment so that they don't have to pay for it in the long run. Oh, that that is so true. Back a few years ago in the Catholic health system in Buffalo, we, my, my boss was the system chief medical officer. And I told him one day, I said, we really have a problem. We, we have a situation where the nurses are staging pressure injuries and they're going to the providers for corroboration and the providers don't know how to stage pressure injury. So he left. He said, well, you just got yourself a job. He said, you're going to educate the providers. I said, Brian, I've tried, and nobody is going to come and sit and listen to Lee talk about pressure ulcers just because they have nothing else to do. So he drove that forward and basically said, he told all of the medical and surgical groups that at each of their next monthly meetings, <laughs> we're going to be forced to listen to me talk about pressure injury. And it turned out to be quite gratifying because many of them came up to me afterwards and said, you know what, we really didn't want to know anything about this, but I realize now that I didn't know anything about this. So it's like anything else. It's all about education, right? And it's about doing the education in a sensitive and, and humble fashion, just like Gosh, your profession. I have a plastic surgeon that works uh, a couple of days in the month out of the month with me in the clinic, and I learn a lot from him. We can help each other without challenging each other. But I think uh, an interesting, very short cl clip is that if if we can prevent one pressure injury, we don't need to treat that pressure injury, and we don't need to pay for treating it. And we don't need to get sued because it happened. Pressure injuries, from what I understand at present, are the number two source of medical legal activity 
in hospitals nationwide. That's, I think that's true. I've, I've heard that same number also. There's Education was what you mentioned was really important towards trying to get buy-in at uh, the physician and the nursing level. Uh, and I just reapplied for my DEA license and I found out that I had to do eight CME hours on opioid management. And it's a federal guideline for renewing your DEA right. license. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's kind of two ways to educate people that you can enforce it upon them or you can somehow make it so that they want to learn. And I think with pressure injury, it's a challenge to get people to want to learn. It is. And so here we are, back here to the we beginning. <laughs> we don't have people that are committed to learning about it. We don't have hospital systems that are committed to paying for it. And we don't have staff that can implement any successful change. But I think going way back to the beginning and how do we stop pressure injuries at the door, if you will, that the initial part of the conversation that you and I had today is take the history. Was somebody lying in bed for three days at home before they got to the ER? So that history, and number two, somebody somewhere along the way in the ER has to take the pants off and look at the backside, look at the heels, look at the trochanters, look at the shoulders. It, it's easy for us to say here, hey, it doesn't take much time, but it really doesn't. It really doesn't. Now, there, there are scenarios, of course, multiple trauma, an unstable cervical spine. There, there are a number of scenarios that really prevent us from doing that initial skin exam. And then we got to document that. Right. I agree. So from your experience, Lee, have, do you have any patients in your mind that you're convinced had their pressure injuries from the emergency department? Yes, I one one elderly lady in in her eighties comes to mind. Right, she had a, a three day febrile respiratory illness at home, and had had essentially been in her recliner chair for for three days before she got to the ED. And fortunately, they did a good head to toe skin exam in the emergency department, and she had that big telltale purple spot over her sacrum. And so she had a deep tissue pressure injury on admission to the emergency department. So that allowed them then to educate the family and the people on the floor. This is a deep tissue pressure injury. This is what it means anatomically and physiologically. And this is probably going to get worse so that there aren't any surprises down the road. I think you're probably right. That initial history is probably still so important in trying to identify these patients early on in the emergency department. That just about wraps up our conversation. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share? Yes. I think one of, one of the favorite things that I like to think about in terms of prevention is historically, folks have wanted us to believe that all pressure injuries are avoidable. And they're not there are those pressure injuries for multiple reasons that are unavoidable. There, there's an unavoidability and avoidability consensus document has been published several times in the last uh, couple of decades. And basically, I, I, I think a very nice way to remember the very best way to prevent pressure injuries is, and it's in, in this document, 
2012 and 2014, uh, uh, Joyce Black and Laura Edsberg were the lead authors on this. And basically it says, patient arrives, you have to develop a patient-specific care plan based on the patient's individual risk factors. In other words, it's not one size fits all. Number two, you have to implement that care plan with the appropriate interventions based on the patient's risk status. Number three, you need to monitor those interventions for effectiveness. Is the patient, does it, is the skin remaining okay in terms of repositioning, pressure redistribution surface? And number four, you have to be nimble enough to change your interventions based on the presence or absence of good progress of the patients. Really, that if you do all of those things, then you can probably say that your pressure injury is unavoidable. But looking at it in another way, that's the best way in my mind to, to approach pressure injury prevention because it helps you not miss anything. Lee, thanks again for a very thoughtful conversation today. I think the National Pressure Injury Prevention Advisory Panel has a, one of, a special person on their team, and I'm, I'm glad it's you. I think that people like you in leadership positions at the national level are beneficial to us all. Thanks again so much for joining us, Dr. Rutzi. David, I appreciate being here. I appreciate your kind words, but you also need to remember that those of us on this end who aren't able to get these things closed need people like you to get them closed. The team never sleeps, Lee. The team, that wound care is team care. Exactly. Right. That's all for this episode of The Pressure Effect. I want to extend a big thanks to Dr. Lee Rutzi for joining us today and giving us some insight into why we all need to start pressure injury prevention in the emergency department. And thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the show, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating or review. I'm Dr. David Zabel. See you next time.